The talk is about courage and right effort and its relationship to freedom. I've been deeply touched by several film clips about uh, the early years of Martin Luther King in his years of marching for freedom. And one of my favorites is when he's in a church in Selma, Alabama. And it was one of his first um, speeches about taking a stand for freedom. And in the church were the poorest of the poor in that state. And he told the people in the church uh, something that I'm still so amazed by. He said, we all have the capacity to die for our freedom. And in that sentence, he gave everyone in that church their dignity back. But not only did he inspire the courage and dignity, but he also inspired patience. He would ask in that beautiful rhythmic sing-song uh, way that he spoke, he said, how long? And then he said, not long. And then he'd say, how long? And he said, not long, until the people in the church were answering him. So he'd say, how long? And they would say, <laughs> so how long do you think it will take for you to be free? <laughs> <laughs> Can you say it? Not long. Not long. <laughs> this practice takes that kind of patience and courage. We want to get it over with. <laughs> No, it's like only if you could wake up and just think, done is what had to be done. <laughs> so this practice, when we start waking up to what it's about, we start to see that it's a way of life, and it's not something we graduate from. It's not something you can leave here with a piece of paper saying, I got this degree, and now I'm a PhD in mindfulness. And then you don't have to do it anymore. And this is hard for us. All of the way that we've been trained is to do something and then not have to do it anymore. And this is the opposite. It's like, it's remembering to be mindful, remembering to be here, remembering, remembering. Uh, it's beginning again, beginning again. So that becomes a way of life. 
to get the sense that we all have the capacity to die for freedom means that we all have the capacity to be free from aversion and attachment. And we do that by understanding what attachment and aversion is. So what is a separate self? What is a me or I or mine? And we discover aspects of that in that all, <laughs> all a I or me or mine is is a temporary moment of identification with aversion. And all that I or me or mine is is a temporary moment of attachment or delusion. So are we willing to face the nuts and bolts of this identification to be free? And if we are willing to face identification, it gives us the dignity and compassion to go through our lives. And I hear so many times, you know, this process of understanding what greed, hatred, and delusion is, and what freedom is, is, is this pace is too slow, you know, or how long will it take? You know, it almost seems impossible. How long? <laughs> Not long. <laughs> <laughs> really, try to remember that when you're feeling that, you know, when he said not long, he was just beaming. So the more we get caught up in time, in the rush, in the hurry, the more impossible it will seem and painful. The present moment is timeless. When mindfulness is present, we have all the time in the world. And the less mindfulness there is, the less time we have. Isn't that ironic? I know when I suffer so much in my daily life, it's because I've created a day where I literally have no time. <laughs> you know, and it's incredible. You know, I have all these lists, and I get so tied up in what I have to do. And it's all just a thought. You know, but it's, it seems really real when, it, and when one is caught in it. But the moment one brings mindfulness to anything, one's back in timelessness. And it's possible to do that in any moment. And it's very important to understand that with concentration, there's always fear. You know, with the, the, the buildup of concentration is important and we, helps us to see clearly but what happens when we lose it? But with mindfulness, there's no fear. You can bring it to anything. It doesn't depend on a momentum. It doesn't depend on a buildup. It's just any moment you remember to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the elevator that I mentioned the other night as a metaphor for understanding reality. Whenever we identify with one layer of reality as the way things should be, we suffer. So the question really is, what is freedom? 
And if we think of freedom as effortless, mindful practice, if we think of freedom as the times when mindfulness, energy, concentration, uh, and equanimity are in balance, then we suffer because when it disappears and we're identified with when we're low energy, when we're tired, when we're aversive, uh, we're not accepting what layer of reality we're seeing the world from. So say we say the tenth floor, the top floor, is the conceptual level of reality, the real thick conceptual level where it's my leg, it's my knee pain. <laughs> and forget courage, forget patience. You know, this is ridiculous. Yeah? So that's really um, solidified around concept. Or say somebody walked in here right now and said, Michelle, you have a phone call. That's the relative level of reality. And it's very helpful when we're in the world to be in that world, to feel free in it, to not feel like we have to reject it to be free. We can be mindful. You know, we walk to the phone, pick it up, hearing, listening. It's any moment you can do it. I used to put on my phone when I looked at it and lifted it up, listening. It helped for a while. <laughs> After a while, I didn't see it. <laughs> so say we have the floors and we're down to the fifth floor. On the retreat, it'll be, it'll be times when you'll feel like the energy is building, and it'll feel like air in a balloon getting bigger. And this is a time in practice where we can use the energy that we're conserving. Renunciation is conserving energy. We use the energy that we're conserving to see more clearly. But this is a layer that we call creativity in the le relative level of the world. And that's a great place in our outer life where we can use that creative energy in wonderful ways. On a retreat, it's easy to get seduced at that place to do whatever we like to do while we're sitting, you know, hour after hour. We'll redecorate the house, you know, <laughs> or we'll build whatever we want to build, or we write the book, or, you know, we have the conversation where we really convince someone that mindfulness is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, all that energy, all that, and it's, it's so easy to rationalize doing it. You know, it's something we really usually want to do, love to do. And it's hard to restrain oneself at that point and go into unknown territory. And that's the, that's the fear. It's like you can either use that energy that's building to go to a new layer um, or not. That takes practice. It takes many times of getting seduced and then getting tired. We're back on the tenth floor. How do we relate to being back on the tenth floor? Is it okay? I call the tenth floor gravity boots. I call the first floor, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> you know, it's like Star Trek. It's, it's light. 
know, sometimes people will get a sense that their body is distorted. And then when that first started happening for me, I used to peek, you know. You're kind of going deeper, and you, you think, my body can't really look like this. <laughs> and we kind of check. <laughs> you know, that's kind of shifting back to the top floor so that we're willing to face the fear of maybe seeing things from a different place. You know, we're dropping levels. We're going what we call deeper. There's more spaciousness, less identification. So the first floor, often what is being perceived is so refined that we don't have a sense of a solid body or we don't sense, have a sense of outside of us as being solid. And we like it. Or we get afraid. The bottom floor, no floor, boy, we really think no floor is a place to go, yeah? The unconditioned. It's amazing how we get so attached to something that doesn't exist. (laughs) 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 Unborn, unconditioned. What's hard for us to get is that all these floors are there each moment. We can access any of these floors. It's not like we have to wait for 10 seconds to get to any of these floors. Or, you know, it's not like the unconditioned is 10 years from now. How long? Not long. Why do you think not long is the answer? Because it's here at the moment. It's not like there's a waiting period. It's here. It's just that we wake up to it at certain times. Tenth floor. Can we wake up to that? And then can we start to see that getting attached to any of these floors is suffering? Right effort. Right effort is skillful means according to which floor we're on. And if we start to understand that, we stop judging the practice and ourselves for when we have to back off and go lightly. Or we don't get so attached to when we are a warrior and that we should be that way all the time. So if you think about that range of low energy or being asleep to high energy, awake, effortless, There's not as much possibility for mindfulness or concentration when we're low energy. It's possible for it to shift any moment, but we're more vulnerable to the hindrances when there's low energy. And we tend to not like that. We tend to identify with that as not being an okay floor. And then we tend to use all our willpower and whip ourselves and hate ourselves and try to get out of that space, out of aversion. Then there's the awake, effortless, high-energy times where there's more seclusion, less vulnerable to hindrances. It can be wonderful, but we can get attached if we get identified to that place. 
when we have to go back to effort, we think we're going back to hell. So different kinds of effort are required at different times. Courage can be seen as the kind of heroic energy, uh, but it doesn't mean (laughs) that the practice looks a certain way. It can be just as heroic to back off as to go in more deeply. So what's important is to see that when we have energy, it is important to be a warrior in the way that we're a warrior. You know, it's important to understand that we can sit or walk through anything. You know, that's the strength that we learn in the practice. Some of you know some of my aversion stories, uh, but when I first uh, started practicing, I didn't have a clue what the relationship to unpleasant feelings were to aversion. And because my conditioning was to not experience aversion, that that was not an okay thing, it would build and build and build and build on a retreat till I exploded. Uh, and I didn't understand. Uh, so I could tell you thousands of those stories. I mean, just thousands of Michelle exploding stories. Um, <laughs> but I'll pick one place, which was <laughs> the ticking clock story. <laughs> uh, so I'm very sensitive to sound. Uh, and of course, the sound of a wood thrush this time of year is heaven. The sound of a ticking clock would have been hell in my early practice. And I actually remember a retreat I did um, for a month, my first long retreat, where both teachers of the retreat in their room, you know, it was their sleeping room and their interview room, had one of these huge clocks, you know, that made so much noise that I could even hear it in the room that I was sleeping in. And I couldn't imagine how they could even be you know, sleeping. You know, how could, that's how sensitive I I was to that kind of a sound. Uh, So as my practice went on and I would do retreats where I would mostly sit in my room, I was always searching for the quiet alarm clock. Uh, And I swear there are people probably still in department stores that talk about me. No, because I would go into a department store and start listening, you know, (laughs) to clocks to see if I could find a silent one. You know, and I'd go off in the corner and be (laughs) holding my head up to the clock, uh, and I'd think I'd get one. And then I'd start sitting, and as I got quieter, I'd start putting pillows and blankets, (laughs) and I'd move it over to the corner of my room. Sometimes I'd move it outside my room. (laughs) (laughs) So there was one retreat that I did where I finally got up the heroic energy to sit through it. If I had done it any earlier than that, it wouldn't have been the right time. And I can't tell you, I mean, I was just drenched with sweat, sitting after sitting, just drenched with sweat. And we can say, the sound of the clock drove me crazy. But that's not the truth. The truth is that the aversion that was appearing in relationship to the clock was driving me crazy. 
And then the aversion to the aversion was really painful. Uh, but there was a place where I just kept staying with it, staying with it, staying with it, so that I could open to that aversion, 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 and break through. You know, so those are the times where one sees a change in one's practice. It's like I could work with the aversion rather than keep running from it, running from it, having to move the clock. And this is one of the things that I'm amazed at in my practice has really shown in my practice. It's like when the loudspeakers go off in Burma and people come in, you know, and they say, you know, I really can't sit through this or I can't sleep through this. And I usually just go, you know, just hearing. It's okay, you know, and where, what the question is, if you think about what the real noise on the planet is, you know, what's the real noise? Is it the unpleasant sounds or is it the aversion? If we were all taking turns to put our mind on a loudspeaker, You know, just imagine if we had a lottery and we could be anonymously chosen to have our mind broadcast. It, it would help you so much. <laughs> if you started to hear what we were all doing, you'd start taking it less personally. You'd hear the praise and blame, the cruelty, the metta, you'd hear the courage, you know, you'd hear the whole show, and you'd see that it was human. But no one seems to want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) When there's low energy, the opposite of that heroic energy, what do we do? Usually we hate ourselves. And it's literally like kicking a horse when it's down. It's like the last thing one needs when one doesn't have heroic energy is to push. And it really depends on one's motivation. Uh, And we talked about it sometime today because there's levels of how one works with this. There was a way in which I learned to keep going a lot in my practice, but lightly. Uh, And I mean really lightly. But first, it takes that compassion to just care about oneself there. There was a time in my practice with um, Sayadaw Upandita where I was um, doing some long hours of practice, and I brought this little stuffed animal with me that I never brought to interviews. (laughs) 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 Uh, But she was uh, part of my practice for a few years to learn how to lighten up in terms of backing up. And so I would be outside doing walking meditation, and I would really want to take a nap. And so (laughs) I would have her in my pocket, and I would put her under a tree and have her take a nap. (laughs) 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 And I would keep walking. And it was so soothing somehow. It was like, you know, you take the nap, I'll keep walking. And then it kind of got much more sophisticated than that. There was a chaise lounge at this retreat, and 
I would put my sunglasses on her and I would have her lay on the chaise lounge and then I would keep doing walking meditation. <laughs> uh, that was just the beginning of learning to back off. You know, it was just kind of me starting to learn how to have some lightness and to keep going. And then there was a point in my practice where I had to learn what I call useless gazing. And that's when I would just go have a cup of tea and stare out the window. And I'd think, well, should I call this a walking or a sitting? (laughs) 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 Uh, But that was just the beginning of me actually learning not to hide it. You know, because in my early years of practice, it was like, it seemed so like bad practice to back off and need to have a cup of tea and just take it easy for a while. Uh, in the low energy, hard times, it's, it's like, it was not an okay thing to do. Um, so that was useless gazing, sitting in the dining room here, looking out the window, taking a sitting or a walking to have a cup of tea. That was the beginning of me learning to back up and not have to hide it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean I'm saying to you, spend the next 12 hours sitting in the dining room, have a cup of tea. Is, what is that fear? You know, is the fear of really learning to trust ourselves and trust each other and know that we're doing the best we can and that we're all in a place where it's different for each of us how the practice goes. And sometimes, in my early years, keeping the form and just doing that was the right thing. And then as practice went on, I had to learn how to adjust it and regulate it from the inside, which was the beginning of more inner trust. So when I think about what is it that prevents us from trusting ourselves in terms of right effort, I think it's comparing. And comparing is the opposite of a humble heart or a pure heart. You know, it's just the opposite of don't know mind or beginner's mind. When we start comparing ourselves with ourselves, with our former practice or ideal of practice, or we compare ourselves with others, we start learning more about what the Buddha called conceit. And the Buddha described three kinds of conceit, not just I am better than. So the Buddha described conceit as any kind of comparison. Because if we compare a separate self with another separate self, it's madness. It's actually based on aversion or attachment. So I am better than you know, and you know that desire to be special and to be the best yogi and how that can motivate us. Or I am equal to, at least I'm equal to everyone, you know. <laughs> and then there's, you know, I am worse than. And then it's, you know, I am just the worst piece of shit that ever existed. You know, it's just, it's awful, you know. And it's all based on I, you. Me. And if you listen to the judgments and the praise and blame, again, it's so cruel. 
One of my favorite things that Sayada Upandita said is, if we see the mind and body clearly, there's no possibility for conceit. Right effort is almost impossible if we're comparing, because the comparing erodes the inner trust. And it comes down to honesty and knowing what works for us and trusting that over time. There was a retreat I did recently where I started to see comparing much more clearly on really subtle forms and really gross forms. And so in its most subtle form, I would see how I would just compare one moment with another moment, you know, and how just a few moments ago, you know, that it was much better than this moment. <laughs> it's incredible how much suffering it is, and so subtle. It's like, oh, that sound was much better than that sound. Oh, I don't like that sound. You know, and that constant, oh, I like that physical sensation. Well, that one was okay, but, you know, it's just judging, 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 judging. <laughs> Over time, we start to learn that comparing kills joy. And it's really just a defense against this conceit, I am better, I am worse, I am equal. We also find that not only does comparing kill the possibility for joy, but that it kills gratitude. And we don't get to appreciate, again, all the floors of the elevator. The top floor is our uniqueness, our diversity, and that really the practice can be fine-tuned for each one of us over time, and that we can trust that, and also to trust that that's going to change. What will work for you this retreat in terms of right effort will be different the next retreat, the next retreat. Not only that, what worked for you the last walking period in terms of motivating you is probably going to be different the next walking period. That's what's hard. I mean, all the little tricks that we have that work for one sitting or one walking won't work the next walking because it's changed. Right effort. Um, will ultimately come down to purity of motivation and the honesty to see clearly what's happening in the present moment and then apply skillful means to what's happening in that moment. After effortless, choiceless awareness or times when it feels like mindfulness is present, at some point, we'll lose it, and aversion or attachment will appear. That's how it's going to be until full enlightenment. It's just the process, and it's meant to be that way. It's like if we start to understand that we're meant to see the aversion and attachment appear, that that's important practice, uh, then we start 
struggling less with the process of how the practice unfolds for each of us. So if we're attached to the bottom floor or the top floor, it's just wanting. And we can see how we can suffer over wanting food or sex or clothes or a sitting back or a walking back or the unconditioned. And what's important is to see that it's just wanting. It's just wanting something on a particular floor. If we think that I have to get what I want, that I am wanting and that I have to get what I want or I have to get rid of wanting, uh, then the motivation will be off. And anything we do in relationship to that, the motivation will be off. (coughs) So if we're wanting or attached to something, and maybe we walk faster or we walk slower or we go to hearing or we go to the breath, if the motivation is aversion or attachment, we'll still be suffering. And we might not understand why, but it's because the shift whether we open up or get more microscopic or have a cup of tea or go to bed with the covers over us, you know, that whenever it's out of aversion or attachment, the experience will still be unsatisfactory or not good enough because there hasn't been that acceptance of the aversion or attachment and we're just running. But at some point, the good news is that mindfulness will come back. And we'll get it. It's like, oh, I was just aversive. Or, oh, there was just attachment. And then the practice will come back together again. Some people will ask, you know, why do we have to have a schedule like this the whole day? The last young adult retreat, um, there was a young adult with Tourette's. And his mother had him sit right in front of me. He was such a courageous young man to come to that retreat. Uh, And his mother made him come to the retreat. Uh, (laughs) So the first question and answer period, he raised his hand and he said, why do we have to do five sittings a day? (laughs) You know, it was just, why five, you know? It just seems so unthinkable. And Steve answered, well, on an adult retreat, there are our sittings for 45 minutes, and we do many more. And it was just like, he said, you mean we're lucky? (laughs) 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 So if you wonder, you know, why is the schedule like this? It's because we're trying to set up a schedule where we're not avoiding anything. We're not avoiding the tiredness or the restlessness or the high energy or the low energy, you know, the good times, the downs times. We're meant to be learning how to be honest about what's really happening in our experience. So the honesty will come with every movement, every scratch, every moment of frustration, or loving-kindness, or boredom, or sloth. You know, so we're meant to be understanding life very deeply, including all of it, 
not just what we pick and choose. One of the aspects of staying with our moment-to-moment experience is understanding that anything can happen. You know, that's dukkha. Because everything's changing, anything can happen. There's that intensity of vulnerability with that understanding. Mindfulness is then a soft readiness. Just a soft readiness for anything to happen. How much of the time that's really happening is revealing. Because when something (laughs) happens that we don't want, you know, do we really have that relationship to it being okay? You know, that anything can happen. The other day I was um, bike riding up to this farm really nearby. I've been coming to Barry since 1967. I first worked in a summer camp, an Audubon camp in Barry. Uh, there's a willow tree that has lived in front of this farm since I've been here in 1967. And there's not so many willow trees around Barry, as you can see. Uh, and after the storm the other night, it came down. Uh, but there, there was no evidence of it, it had, that the people had already taken it away. So I was bike riding up there, and it was like, you know, one of those touchstones for me here was gone. You know, and it's, you know, that's, that's how life is. Suddenly, the thing that we thought would be there always is disappeared. And we don't realize, you know, that feeling of we don't realize how important it was to us until it disappears. Of course, then I was standing there, and I saw that in the back of the farm, there was another willow tree. And I found myself going, well, there's another willow tree. You know, I was trying to make it better. (laughs) I have a friend that was really um, close to her dog for, I don't know, I think he lived 17 or 18 years. And when he died, She was just, you know, it was like the most close being to her had died. And some people don't understand that kind of relationship with an animal. And so many of our friends, after, you know, she was still grieving uh, for a while, they would say, why don't you get another dog? You know, and you know that sense of how people can be around things changing. And she was like, but... I don't want another dog. (laughs) I still want that dog, you know? And that's so important for us to be able to have that ease with grieving. A lot of the practice is grieving. Facing that ache of loss, of change, is important for us to see. There's a part of me that thinks that as people are getting more awake, that they're expecting less sorrow or less grief, you know, more joy, more equanimity. But the path is one of opening to change. 
And some of the practice is really facing the grief and the ache in that. If we can become mindful of it, there's a kind of sweet poignancy to facing the dukkha. What I notice for a lot of people is that they'll have an insight into dukkha and then aversion to it. And we don't recognize that we're having a really important insight into that anything can happen. We're feeling the vulnerability, and then we clamp down on it. And we don't even realize we're having an insight. So that's very important in the Vipassana practice to start seeing the difference between understanding dukkha and getting lost in the aversion to dukkha. I started to have a note when I would hit uh, dukkha land. (laughs) I'd call it dukkha land. (laughs) Uh, And it's very distinguishable from anicca land or anatta land. Dukkha land has that poignancy and ache, uh, and we often have the aversion to it. Freedom comes when we have the courage not to try to get anywhere other than where we are, and to realize that Awakening, enlightenment, happens with whatever is happening in the present moment. There's so much joy and sorrow in this world, and the practice is one of connecting with our moment-to-moment experience. We're connecting with the joy and sorrow, and we're also learning not to identify with it, to be non-attached. That's a paradox. You know, reflect on that a bit. We're asking you to connect and not be attached. And that's freedom. So there can be a range from neutral, we think nothing's happening, to times of bottomless sorrow. That it seems like it's permanent, to incredible joy with the beauty of life. And can we open, connect, not be attached to that whole range. Sometimes I find smells to be the most evocative um, and poignant. Because I grew up in New England, there's a certain smell that I, I think of as the birth of summer. And you can have, feel it coming for some days, especially at night. Uh, But you know how a newborn baby smells so good? Well, there's a smell to the birth of summer that I find intoxicating. You know, it's just, there's, I don't know what the specific smell is. I think it's just the whole forest. There's a sweetness of um, summer coming uh, that's so beautiful. And then the next moment, a willow tree can be gone. You know, to be able to arrive here for all of that. What prevents us from listening to the courageous parts of ourselves? Is it comparing? Is it fear? Is it aversion to dukkha? I find that when I'm on retreat, 
there's always something that happens that seems like it's preventing me <laughs> from awakening. Uh, so the first long retreat I did, um, partway through the retreat, I was covered with eczema. It's like I was born like that, and I thought it had gone. And it was just incredible. It was just like this oozing, bloody, itchy skin all over me. Uh, and it was something that I couldn't hide. You know, I couldn't pretend that it wasn't happening. Uh, and I had to have the teacher take me to the doctor. And becoming visible in that way, there was so much shame uh, and fear and discomfort. But it was actually the place in the retreat that I started, once I surrendered to that, I started going deeper. And I've had that experience I could say every retreat that there's something that comes up. It, for you, it might not be so physical. I somatize greatly uh, in my life. Uh, but the last retreat that I did, I twisted my ankle. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, it was really mild. But, you know, it always seems like there's something, right? You know, something always happens where it seems like it's getting in the way. Uh, it's the obstacle of the retreat. And actually, when you start to surrender to it, it's what allows you to see aversion or attachment more clearly. So sometimes these obstacles will feel really clear and gross, and other times they can be very subtle. It might be that you hear somebody ask a question in the hall, and it sounds like they're doing better than we are, and we start comparing. We think they're going slower than us, or, and we feel better, or we think they're going faster than us, and we feel worse. Um, often on a retreat, we might get to a place where we're evaluating where we are, and we fear we're not going to get what we want. But it's just fear. You're really getting all you need, I can assure you, to wake up. If you make it through a day of retreat, you're getting plenty to wake up. I had a friend in my early years of practice who was convinced that there was this pain in his head that was preventing him from enlightenment. I mean, he didn't think this was funny, but... (laughs) Every retreat, you know, he'd come out, and and he's like, if it just would go away, I'm sure I'd be enlightened by now. Uh, And I kept listening to this after a few years, and I finally said to him one day, you know, maybe, maybe it's okay that the pain is in your head, and maybe that's going to be the way you get to freedom. And it was astonishing to him, you know, to even think that that could be possible. I just um, was given a book called Stikine by John Muir last night, and he describes a trip that he has made to Alaska uh, because he was investigating glaciers. And in those days, 
you know, they didn't have Gore-Tex or great boots or great <laughs> dehydrated food. Or, you know, he was an amazing adventurer and explorer, just extraordinary. Uh, and in this description in the book, he's describing how much he likes storms. So I just like to read part of it. He's about to go on this exploration, and of course no one's going to go with him because it's crazy. You know, it's a storm in Alaska where the glaciers are. So he wakes, I awoke early, called not only by the glacier, which had been on my mind all night, but by a grand flood storm. The wind was blowing a gale from the north, and the rain was flying with the clouds in a wide, passionate, horizontal flood, as if it were all passing over the country instead of falling on it. The main perennial streams were booming high above their banks, and hundreds of new ones, roaring like the sea, almost covered the lofty gray walls of the inlet with white cascades and falls. I had intended making a cup of coffee and getting something like a breakfast before starting, but when I heard the storm and looked out, I made haste to join it. <laughs> For many of nature's finest lessons are to be found in her storms, and if careful to keep in right relation with them, we may go safely abroad with them, rejoicing in the grandeur and beauty of their works and ways. He tied himself to a tree once during an intense thunderstorm so that he could really experience a storm. Luckily, on retreat, we don't have to do that. <laughs> You know, the storms come anyway, yeah? You know, we're, we're, we're part of nature, the mind and body. We're part of this earth. We're part of the storms. And the mind and body, you know, that happens, whether it's physical or emotional, mental. The storms come. And how do we relate to him? We relate to them. It's like, do we get up early and skip breakfast because we can't wait to face it. Now that's, that's a joy of practice. There are times in practice that we have that kind of relationship to learning about all our experience. So it's not necessary for us to tie ourselves to a tree during a storm to get to know and taste and be so deeply touched by the universe, to deeply understand includes all experience. Every moment we face the fleetingness of existence, the joy and sorrow, the ups and downs, and we start to understand that each moment is worthy of our attention. All layers of the reality, all floors of the elevator, when we start to relate to all floors of the elevator with equality, we start to get what freedom is. Remember that right effort is the courage it takes to useful means 
for whatever floor of the elevator we're on and to trust where we are and which skillful means works for us. So I'd like to end with a poem by Joseph Bruchak. And he wrote this poem in the memory of the poet William Stafford. And it's called A Log. And as you know, a log in the forest is a very ordinary, simple thing. And if you think of the present moment as this log in the poem, you'll understand why I'm reading it. A log. There is a log, quiet in the woods, life on it, within it, all around it. But we step over it on our way elsewhere. We don't even think about being that log. We want to be bright lights, stars in the sky, another sun, or at least an eagle flying, not at rest. Instead of allowing to pull ourselves, sheer force of will into the sky, but we need it of course, that log. Every moment of our life, every moment of our retreat is part of the journey. Every difficult moment, every liberated moment is part of the journey of awakening. So may we have the courage to be free in this human world. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.